Section 11 of On the Nature of Things. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric DeSigo. On the Nature of Things by Lucretius. Translated by John Selby Watson. Section 11. Book 4, Part 2 We have already spoken of sight, and now no difficult argument is left for us to show how the other senses discern each its own object. In the first place, every sound and voice is heard when, being infused into the ears, they have struck with their substance on the sense. For we must admit that voice and sound are corporeal, since they can make impression on the senses. On this account the voice often abrades the throat, and its loud sound, as it passes forth, makes the windpipe rougher. For when the atoms of the voice, a larger body of them than usual having risen together, have proceeded to go forth from the mouth, the passage of the mouth, from the pores being filled up, is rendered hoarse, and the voice injures the road by which it issues into the air. It is by no means to be doubted, therefore, that voices and words consist of corporeal particles, as having power to cause corporeal injury. Nor does it escape your knowledge, also, how much substance perpetual speaking, protracted from the rising splendor of aurora to the shade of black night, detracts from the body, and how much it wears away from the very nerves and strength of men, especially if it is uttered with extreme loudness. The voice, therefore, must necessarily be corporeal, since he who speaks much loses, from its effect, a portion of his corporeal substance. Nor do the particles of sound penetrate the ear under a like form, when the crooked barbarian trumpet bellows heavily with a deep murmur and calls up a hoarse dead sound, and when swans, in the pangs of death, raise, with a mournful voice, a liquid dirge from the veils of Helicon. These words and sounds, therefore, when being formed within, we expel them from our body and send them forth straight by the mouth. The act of tongue, skillful in forming words, articulates, and the shape into which the lips are put partly assists to fashion them. But asperity of the voice is caused by asperity of its particles, and its smoothness is also produced by their smoothness. For this reason, when the distance is not great to the spot whence each word having started forth, arrives at our ears, it happens, of necessity, that the words themselves are also plainly heard, and distinguished in every note, for the voice keeps its formation and maintains its figure. But if a greater space than is convenient is interposed, the words, passing through a large body of air, are necessarily confused, and the voice, while it flies through the aerial interval, is disordered. 
It accordingly happens that you hear a sound, but cannot distinguish what is the meaning of the words. So confused and obstructed does the voice come to you. Besides, one word, uttered from the mouth of a crier in the midst of the people, often penetrates the ears of all. One voice, therefore, suddenly divides into many voices, since it distributes itself to each individual ear, stamping on it, as it were, the form and clear sound of the words. But that part of the several voices which does not fall on the ears themselves is lost, being carried past them and diffused through the air. Some portion of it, too, struck against solid objects and rebounding like a stone, returns a sound, and sometimes mocks you with the semblance of a word. Which things, when you consider, my good friend, you may be able to render an account to yourself and others how rocks, in solitary places, regularly return similar forms of words to those which we utter when we seek our companions wandering among the shady hills and call them as they are scattered abroad with a loud voice. I have noticed places repeat six or seven words when you uttered only one, for the mountains, reverberating the words spoken, repeated them so that they were re-echoed without change. Such places the neighboring people pretend that satyrs and nymphs inhabit, and say that there are fawns in them, by whose noise and sportive play, re-echoing through the night, they universally affirm that the dead silence is broken, and that sounds of chords and sweet plaintive notes are heard, which the pipe, struck with the fingers of those playing, pours forth around. They relate also that the race of husbandmen hear far and wide when, frequently, Pan, shaking the piney garland of his half-savage head, runs over the open reeds with his curved lip, ceasing not to repeat his sylvan song. Other wonders and prodigies of this kind they relate, lest, perhaps they should be thought to dwell in lonely places, deserted even by the gods. For this reason they talk of such marvels in their discourse, or, perchance, are prompted by some other cause, as all men are too eager for years that will listen to wonderful stories. Furthermore, it is not surprising how, through places where the eyes cannot discern plain objects, through these very places voices pass and excite the ears. We often, too, witness a dialogue held between two persons in different apartments, with the doors closed. The cause is, evidently, this, that the voice can pass unbroken through winding pores of bodies, though images refuse to pass through them, for the latter are broken to pieces, unless they go through straight passages, such as those of glass, through which every image flies. Besides, the voice is distributed in all directions, inasmuch as some voices are produced from others, for this happens where one voice has split itself into many, as a spark of fire, 
when it has started forth, is often wont to disperse itself into its own separate fires. Places, accordingly, which have been all shut up behind and around the speaker, are filled with voices, and shaken with sound. But as for images, they all, when once they have been thrown off, pass only by straight openings, for which reason no one can see objects beyond walls, though he may hear voices from beyond them. And yet this very voice, also, while it goes through the obstructed passages, is dulled, and we seem to hear a sound rather than distinct words. That faculty, by which we perceive taste, the organs being the tongue and the palate, requires for itself somewhat more argument and more explanation. In the first place, we perceive savor in the mouth when we express it from food by mastication, as when any one, for example, proceeds to press and dry with his hand a sponge full of water. What we express is then distributed through all the ducts of the palate, and the tortuous pores of the soft tongue. By this means, when the atoms of the juice flowing out are smooth, they touch the sense agreeably, and affect all parts around the humid exuding regions of the tongue with pleasure. But, on the other hand, as atoms are severally more endowed with roughness, so much the more, issuing forth in a body, they sting and lacerate the sense. Moreover, pleasure experienced from the taste of food is limited by the extent of the palate, as, when the juice has descended downwards through the throat, there is no enjoyment while it is all being distributed through the members, nor is it of any consequence with what food the body is nourished, so that you be but able to disperse what you take, when digested, through the organs, and preserve the humic tenor and action of the stomach. I will now explain, in order that we may understand this point, how it is that different food is allotted to different animals, or why that which is sour and bitter to some may yet seem to others extremely sweet. And so great is the difference and variety in these matters, that that which to some is food, to others is rank poison. Thus it happens that a serpent, which is touched with human saliva, perishes, and even commits suicide by biting himself. Besides, hellebore is strong poison to us, but increases the fat of goats and quails. That you may understand by what means this happens, it becomes you, in the first place, to call to mind what we have often said before that in bodies are contained many seminal atoms, mingled in many ways. Moreover, as all living creatures which take food are dissimilar externally, and as the extreme outline of their limbs restricts them variously according to their kinds, so they likewise consist of different seminal particles, and vary in the figure of their elements. Further, when the seminal particles differ, their intervals and passages, which we call pores, in all the limbs, and in the mouth, and the palate itself, must likewise differ. 
some of these pores, therefore, must be greater, and some less. Some animals must have triangular pores, some square, many pores must be round, and some polygonal, varied in several ways. For as the nature of the shapes of the seminal particles and their motions require, the figures of the pores must differ accordingly, and the intervals among the atoms must vary just as the combination of the atoms demands. On this account, when that which is sweet to some animals is bitter to others, exquisitely smooth atoms must enter gently and easily into the pores of the palate of that animal to whom it is sweet. But, on the contrary, rough and jagged particles, as is evident, pierce the mouths of those animals to whom the same substance is bitter. From these facts it is now easy to understand every particular connected with this subject. For when in any person fever has arisen from the superabundance of the bile, or any violence of disease has been excited by any other means, his whole body is at once disturbed, and all the positions of the atoms in him are changed. It happens that particles which before suited his sense of taste are now unsuitable to it, and others, which, when they have penetrated the pores, produce a bitter sensation, are more adapted to it. For even in sweet bodies, as in the flavor and substance of honey, both rough and smooth particles are mixed, a fact which we have demonstrated to you frequently before. And now give me your attention further, for I shall show in what manner the approach of odor affects the nostrils. First, there must necessarily exist many substances, from which a varied effluence of odors streams forth and evolves itself, for that odors do both flow off and are sent forth and dispersed abroad, we must naturally suppose. But certain odors, on account of the different shapes of their particles, are more suited to some animals than to others, and thus bees are attracted by the smell of honey in the air, however far distant, and vultures by the smell of carcasses. Also the keen scent of dogs, preceding their steps, leads them whithersoever the cloven hoof of the stag has directed its course, and the white goose, the preserver of the citadel of the Romans, perceives from afar the smell of a man. Thus different scent assigned to different animals leads each to its own food, and causes it to recoil from destructive poison, and by this means the tribes of beasts are preserved. Of this very odor, then, which excites the nostrils, it happens that one kind is carried farther than another, but yet none of them is carried so far as sound or as the voice. I forbear to say as those airy substances which strike the eyes and excite vision. For odor, wandering about, passes but slowly, and being dispersed through the yielding air, soon gradually dies away, chiefly because it is with difficulty evolved out of any substance from its interior. For that odors flow and come forth from the interior of substances, 
this consideration sufficiently indicates that all bodies when broken bruised or split into fragments in the fire seem to cast a stronger scent than when whole it is besides easy to see that odor is composed of larger atoms than sound since it does not penetrate through stone walls through which the voice and sounds constantly pass for which reason you will see that it is not so easy to ascertain in what quarter a body that casts a scent is placed as to find out one that emits a sound for the force and impulse of an odor by moving slowly through the air soon becomes chill and powerless nor do the atoms the heralds of substances come warm to the sense from this cause dogs are often at fault and have to seek for the traces of the scent nor does this occur indeed in respect to odors only and in the case of tastes but the appearances and colors of things likewise do not so agree with the senses of all men alike but that some are more acrid and repulsive to the sight than others even fierce lions cannot endure to stand against and to look upon a cock which as his flapping wings startle the night is accustomed to call aurora with his loud voice lions i say will not endure him so suddenly do they bethink them of flight the cause evidently being that there are in the bodies of cocks certain particles which when sent forth into the eyes of lions pierce the pupils and cause sharp pain so that the beasts however fierce cannot hold out against them although these same particles cannot at all hurt our eyes either because they do not penetrate or because if they do penetrate a free outlet from the eye is permitted to them so that they cannot in any respect hurt the organs of sight by remaining in them and now give me your attention and learn what substances affect the mind and understand in a few words whence those things which come into the mind proceed in the first place i assert this that numbers of subtle images of things wander about in many ways in all directions images which when they meet are easily united together in the air as the spider's web and a leaf of gold for these images are far finer in their texture than those which affect the eyes and excite vision since these penetrate through the small pores of the body and excite the subtle substance of the mind within and arouse the sense thus it is that we see centaurs and the members of psylli and the cerberian mouths of dogs and the apparitions of those whose bones after death has been passed the earth contains since spectra of all kinds are everywhere carried about which are partly such as are formed spontaneously in the air partly whatever fly off from various objects and partly those which images formed of figures of these two kinds compose for assuredly the image of a centaur is not formed from a living centaur since there has been no such figure in life but when the images of a horse and a man have come together by chance they easily and quickly cohere as we said before 
because of their subtle nature and filmy texture. Other images of this sort are produced in the same manner, and since these, from their extreme lightness, are, as I have shown above, swiftly carried about, any one thin image of them all easily stimulates our mind with a single impression, for the mind is itself subtle and eminently excitable. That these things take place, as I state, you may easily learn from hence, that inasmuch as this impression on the mind is similar to that on the bodily senses, it necessarily follows that that which we see with the mind and that which we see with the eye are effected by similar means. As I have shown, accordingly, that I perceive lions, for example, by means of images of lions which excite the eyes, we may understand that the mind is moved by images of lions in like manner, and by other images of other things, which it sees and discerns equally and not less than the eyes, only we must observe that it sees more subtle images. Nor for any other reason does this sense of the mind become awake when sleep has spread itself over the limbs, than because these same images excite our minds, which affect our senses when we are corporeally awake, to such a degree that we seem plainly to behold him, of whom, his life having been yielded up, death and the earth have already taken possession. This nature of necessity brings to pass, and from this cause, that all the senses of the body, being obstructed and bound up by sleep, are at rest throughout the several members, and are enabled to refute any false appearance by real facts. Besides, the memory lies inactive and torpid in sleep, and shows no disbelief in appearances, or intimates that he whom the mind imagines that it sees alive, has long ago partaken of death and forgetfulness. As to what remains for consideration, it is not surprising that images should move and agitate their arms and other members with regularity, for it happens that many an image seems to do this in our sleep. This is to be explained in the following way, that when the first image passes off, and a second is afterwards produced in another position, the former then seems to have changed its gesture. This, doubtless, we must conceive to be done by a very rapid process. So great is the activity of images, and so great the number of things from which they proceed, and so great, too, is the abundance of atoms, that it may suffice for that which is to be perceived by the senses at any time whatsoever. And many other questions are raised on these matters, and many points must be made clear by us, if we wish to explain these subjects distinctly. In the first place, it is inquired why the mind immediately thinks of that very thing of which any one has desired to think. Do images watch our pleasure, and as soon as we wish, does an image present itself to us? If it is our desire to think of the sea, of the earth, or of the heaven, of assemblies of men, of a procession, of banquets, of battles, does nature create and prepare images of all these things at our word? 
especially when the minds of different men in the same country and place think of things entirely different? What shall we say, moreover, when we perceive images in our sleep advance before us in order, and move their pliant limbs, when, as we observe them, they wave with ease their bending arms alternately, and repeat gesture after gesture with the foot corresponding to the look? Are images, forsooth, inspired with the art of dancing? And do they, skilled in gesticulation, wander about, in order that they may make sport for us in the night-time? Or will this rather be the truth, that we perceive that variety of motions in one and the same portion of time, as in that time in which one word is uttered, many smaller portions of time, which reason discovers to be in it, are contained. From this cause it happens that at any time whatsoever any images are ready at hand, prepared for all places, so great is their activity, and so great the abundance of objects from which they proceed. By this means, when the first image passes away, and a second is afterwards produced in another position, the first then seems to have changed its gesture. And because images are subtle, the mind cannot acutely discern any but those which it earnestly endeavors to discern. All, therefore, which exist besides these pass away unnoticed, unless the mind has thus prepared itself and endeavored to distinguish them. The mind, accordingly, does prepare itself and expects that that will occur which is consequent on that which has preceded, so that it observes each particular occurrence. Thus, therefore, the effect is produced. Do you not see, also, that the eyes, when they have begun to look at things which are small, exert and prepare themselves, and that we could not, without this exertion, clearly discern them? And even in respect also to objects easily distinguishable, you may observe that if you do not apply your mind to remark any one of them, it is just the same as if it were all the time removed and far distant from you? How is it therefore surprising, if the mind loses sight of all other images, except those concerning matters to which it is itself directed? Besides, we form opinions of great things from small indications, and thus lead ourselves into the delusion of deceit. It happens also that sometimes a second image is not presented of the same kind as the first, but that that which was before a woman under our hands seems to be before us changed into a man, or that one face and one age follows after another, but at this sleep and oblivion prevent us from wondering. In these matters, remember that it is necessary diligently to shun this fault, and to avoid it cautiously as a most grievous error, the fault, namely, of supposing that all the parts of animals were formed with a view to the uses to which they have been adapted, lest you should suppose that the bright luminaries of the eyes were produced that we may be able to see with them, and that the pillars of the legs and thighs, built upon the feet, were united for this purpose, that we might take long steps on the road, 
and moreover that the forearms fitted to the stout upper arms and the hands ministering on either side were given us that we might perform those offices which would be necessary for the support of life other suppositions of this sort whatever explanations men give are all preposterous reasoning being thus perverted for nothing was produced in the body to the end that we might use it but that which has been produced being found serviceable for certain ends begets use neither was the faculty of seeing in existence before the light of the eyes was made nor that of speaking with words before the tongue was formed but rather the origin of the tongue long preceded speech and the ears were made long before any sound was heard and in fine all members as i think existed before there was any use of them discovered they could not therefore have been produced for the sake of being used but on the contrary to engage in battle with the hand and to tear the limbs and to pollute the body with gore was practised long before bright darts were hurled and nature compelled us to avoid a wound before the left hand by the help of art presented the defence of a shield and certainly to commit the wearied body to rest is of much more antiquity than the soft cushions of the couch and to quench the thirst was practised before cups were invented such things as these then which were found out from experience and the objects of life may be believed to have been invented for the purpose of using them those things however which were all first produced independently gave a knowledge of their utility afterwards of which kind especially we see that the senses and members of the body are wherefore again and again i say it is impossible for you to believe that they could have been produced for the sake of use this also is not to be wondered at that the very nature of the body of every animal requires food for i have shown that many atoms pass off and recede from substances in many ways but the most numerous must pass off from animals because they are exercised by motion and many particles are carried forth urged from the interior of the body by perspiration many also are exhaled through the mouth when they pant from weariness by these means therefore the body wastes and all its nature is undermined a state on which pain is attendant on this account food is taken that it may support the limbs and being given at intervals may recruit the strength and repress the eager desire of eating throughout the organs and veins liquid also descends into all parts of the body whatsoever require liquid and the moisture coming into the frame dissipates the many collected atoms of heat which cause a burning in our stomach and extinguishes them like fire so that arid heat may no longer dry up our limbs thus therefore you see panting thirst is expelled from our bodies thus the pining desire of food is satisfied end of section 11 book 4 part 2